So hi, this is Tundivag and Atkins, and this is episode 18 of our Treasure Island Pedagogies podcast series from the Centre for Innovation in Education at the University of Liverpool, where we share our light bulb moments, teaching props and pedagogies, as we cohabit our Treasure Island, the space for contact time with students. I have the pleasure of introducing four guests today, Alexandra Owen, Karen Ferreira Meyers, Mary Jacob and James Stanfield. And I would love all of you to briefly introduce yourself, your original discipline and your current role and how did you arrive here? Hi everyone, thanks so much um, to Tunde and to CIE for this invitation. My name is Alex Owen. I'm a senior academic developer based at the University of Liverpool. Previously, my role um, uh, was that I was head of department at Liverpool Hope University. Um, based in the discipline of education, education studies, and specifically childhood studies as well. Um, but now I'm working as a senior academic developer based in the academy at the University of Liverpool. My role involves working in collaboration from across um, with colleagues from across the institution, um, and it's to do with enhancing the development of excellence in learning and teaching. Um, so thinking about the university's strategic objectives and supporting colleagues to meet those in regard to our learning and teaching practice. Yeah, thanks, Alice. That, that's great. Uh, what about you, Karen? Hi, uh, my name is Karen Ferreira Meyers, and um, I'm originally from Belgium, but I, I got to Swaziland, which is now called Eswatini in southern Africa, more than 30 years ago. So a, a lifetime, we're going to say. Um, I started off uh, in the Department of Modern Languages, where I taught uh, French language and literature and cultures. And um, then in 2010, I migrated to the Institute of Distance Education, where uh, as an associate professor, I am also the coordinator of linguistics and modern languages. Um, in addition to that, we also cooperate with the Center of Excellence in Learning and Teaching, and we train uh, many of our colleagues from the conventional side of the university, we are a dual mode university, um, to work um, at a distance, to work online, to get used to the online uh, environment. And this has been accelerated uh, due to COVID, of course. Thank you. I was just going to make that comment, exactly that, that you must have been in great demands in the last few years. Yeah. Thank you, yep. Karen. What about you, Mary? Well, I'm Mary Jacob, and I'm based at Aberystwyth University here in Wales. Um, but my original disciplines were English and creative writing, as well as Chinese language and literature. Before moving to Wales in 2005, I was a lecturer in Chinese language and literature at University of California at Davis. Now I'm a lecturer in learning and teaching, and I've been running our postgraduate certificate in teaching and higher education here. Um, I'm in my fifth year now of doing that at Aberystwyth University. So I, I guess my current discipline is education now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's great. What about you, James? Hi, my name's uh, James Stanfield. Um, I work in the School of Education um, at Newcastle University. Um, I suppose my original discipline, I graduated in business studies, worked in supply chain management at a car company in the West Midlands got very bored with cars after about five years, moved to London to work in some think tanks and got very interested in the, the um, ideas and then moved to Newcastle. I've been here for about 20 years. Um, and the original subject, I suppose, was international development and education. Um, and I worked alongside Professor James Tilley and Professor Pauline Dixon, 
looking at low-cost private schools in across the global south. And also worked with Professor Sagasa Mitra, who um, won the TED Prize in 2013 for his hole in the wall. Uh, and that's geared me, um, or kind of slanted my interest into the digital aspects of things. And I'm wow. now teaching, yeah, I'm now teaching a module. His module started off as the future learning. Um, and so I, I've carried on that one and introduced a new one in the last year or so for undergraduates called Adventures in Digital Learning, which is great mm -hmm. for that sounds really intriguing. I hope you can talk us a bit more. Um, so thanks everyone for the introductions. And you know what? One of the things we will we are going to ask you now is to share a light bulb moment with uh, with wh whoever your students might have been. And I know it's difficult because you might have had many over the careers that you've uh, just talked about. But if you wanted to just set, share one light bulb moment, what would it be? I have a fairly recent one. Um, it actually also at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, um, we had just started a new program, uh, a B.Ed. Uh, primary and secondary education with French as a major. And uh, we were welcoming students who had already done a diploma in either primary or secondary education. Um, they got to the university uh, with the understanding that they were going to be working with me in a classroom setting uh, for many, many hours a week where we would be all together, you know, toiling and learning more French and learning more practices to, to teach French afterwards. And then unfortunately, the campus was closed, everything was closed, and we found ourselves online. Uh, it took a very long moment before some of the students finally had their light bulb moment, which was mine at the same time, that the online environment is so much um, more, I would say, useful, so much more um, flexible than what a classroom setting often is and so that was for me something very very special can you talk through us then karen what what was it the so much more useful if you elaborated on that mm, i think it was uh, first and foremost the fact that the students can um, listen and listen again to what we've recorded so if we have a zoom or a big blue button class you know in that environment or a teams whatever you know software or environment we want to yeah. use they can listen to it over and over again and i think in particular with a language it's important to get um, extensive input so even though they listen to my voice then, we can also augment it with other resources that they can find online or that I can provide for them. And I think it's that combination of uh, being able to listen, to write, to work through something at any time and in any place. But I must say that um, we still have major issues here in the global south with infrastructure, with uh, data cost with connectivity but all in all it has been very beneficial to move uh, completely online I think we'll go back to a blended uh, learning format mm -hmm. but for now you know the online has been working quite well mm -hmm. and what were these points you said it took students a while to to recognize or perhaps so what was the feedback to you what were where you could tell that this was the case and I'm, I'm guessing there were probably some reticence or barriers in addition to the technical infrastructure but perhaps around learning and teaching i think it was um 
first and foremost, a, a general at negative attitude towards everything that has to do with distance and online. Um, you know, in the country, uh, distance education is still seen as the you know, the, the less fortunate little brother or sister of education. So it, it's been hard to make people see the value of distance and uh, e-learning. But I think COVID, that's the definitely the silver lining. COVID has shown us that, first of all, we have no, um, we have no alternative in many cases. So we just have to go that way. But secondly, that there are major benefits to this type of environment. Yeah, any other, thank you, Karen. Any other light bulb moments? Well, I, I might like to go next. Um, I had a hard time deciding between my very first teaching experience and a very recent one. And I'm, I'm wondering whether the recent one might be of more interest to the listeners to this podcast. So I'll, I'll talk about this one. It's connected to my prop. Um, so when the, when the pandemic hit, and we had to switch everything from, uh, you know, where we did things face to face and switch it to online. Um, we, I started to use this method of using um, shared documents in Teams, and you could do it with Google Docs or something else as well, for um, especially for our seminars. So I would previously have assigned um, an article and given them some thought questions about the article, maybe just a couple of thought questions. And then they would we would come in together and sit around a big table. And usually as people who lead seminars may have found that some people might not prepare, some people might um, tend to dominate the discussion. They've got lots of good ideas and they're always contributing. And there's sometimes people who are not necessarily contributing verbally when it's a round table in person discussion. So we do our best to balance that. But when I switched to the online um, format for this, I did a, I did two things different. One is I put um, I annotated the PDF of the article, so I put more thought questions and more side comments and things into the article itself. I gave that to them in advance, and then I put a worksheet um, in the shared documents via chat. Um, so I said, okay, at the beginning of the session. We'll give you five minutes, type in your thoughts on all these different things based on the article into the boxes in the worksheet. And it was amazing. You could see that all of these people, almost everyone was typing straight away and you can see their, you, you could see their initials. So what it did was, and, and so I, I got this sort of excitement in myself, you know, drove my enthusiasm and motivation as, as the coordinator, as the facilitator for this. Um, but I could see that the people who would be quiet in a group verbal discussion were contributing in the writing and they would contribute all at the same time and they start pinging off of each other and elaborating on each other's ideas and then we use that to structure the discussion. I ask, you know, further questions, get them to think more deeply about it. And um, so that's become a standard part of the provision now. Um, and I hadn't anticipated that. So that's why it's really a light bulb moment. It's like, wow, this is the way to be inclusive. Yeah, it sounds like a great moment for you, isn't it? Because you, you work so hard on the worksheet. There's a lot of design that goes into sessions, but you never really get a sense of what's going to happen until it's there. So when, when you get that reward, it's so nice, isn't it? Yes, and then they they start to amplify and provide concrete examples to each other's contributions and people find that 
there's commonality in terms of their experience and their challenges. Of course, my students are teaching staff in the university, so they're not the typical students. Um, Great, thank you for sharing this. What about James or Alex? <laughs> Alex? I've, got, I've got a good one that builds a little bit in terms of what Mary's been sharing around this idea of kind of designing our curriculum universally uh, for all students. And uh, my example comes kind of pre-COVID pre actually from when I was teaching undergraduate students. And I remember really clearly, this is from about 10 years ago now, but it's really defined the way I think um, and about the way I want to practice moving forward. Um, there was this one student in seminars, highly engaged, highly articulate, really driven in terms of her learning. Um, and I was actually her personal tutor um, from the first year all the way through to her third year. Um, but when it came to her written assessment, she did very, very poorly. Um, and, you know, we, we explored this together. But one thing I did as an academic and as her personal tutor was to pull in um, my colleagues from prof professional services. Um, so those in dis uh, disabled student support services, study support services, and we work with this student holistically. In a way, if I'm honest, I'd never worked with a student before. And I've got a really profound um, light bulb moment where she walked into my office on results day, absolutely sobbing. And I thought, oh, gosh, um, but she got her first because oh, she'd wow. been top uh, her words to me were, um, I've always believed I'm stupid. Um, because the education system had been set up in a way that because she couldn't perform through, you know, written um, assessment um, and she hadn't had the support she needed, she, she truly believed she was stupid um, and, and she'd done incredibly well in her degree. But the reason I'm sharing that is because I now work in professional services. Um, I'm no longer working as an academic. And for me, I really struggle um, to, to get that relationship with some academics because we're all a bit disjointed and we're in a very big institution now. Um, but I've seen the power of us all working holistically together around a student. Um, so it's not just about the academic learning. It's about all the different elements of the student's life um, that I think has a really profound impact. Um, so I just wanted to share that because for me, that was a massive light bulb moment um, in terms of you know, how I've then continued with my career. And I think that, you know, just that student obviously stands for many other students. But just as you were talking, I was like in, in tears because, you know, for that student is such a massive and she's not the only or they are not the only one. And um, so, what um, I mean, that there is a lot around inclusion and inclusive approaches at the moment, which hopefully tackle or are aimed exactly providing this, Alex. So hopefully... Um, that is a, such a good story for, for that and a yeah. good evidence for that, doesn't it? To Absolutely. I mean, there's lot, lots of triggers off the back of that. I mean, it made me go and look into the whole idea of kind of universal curriculum design, which, if I'm honest, I hadn't even looked at before, which is a bit of in terms of what, Mary, you were sharing. Um, so how do we design our curriculum to suit all students, not just the student maybe with dyslexia or the student who doesn't have dyslexia, but all students? Um, so I was able to de um, develop my curriculum. I was able to work with the incredible colleagues who um, worked in the library in terms of learning support. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's so many avenues that a light bulb moment like that can take you down. Mm -hmm. Oh, that, thank you, Alex, for sharing. That's so powerful. Thank you, James. Okay, so I'm now going to try and link my story with this issue of inclusion. I think I can do it. So um, from about 2017 to up until the the pandemic. I was working on a project um, 
where we were introducing, we were asked to introduce an innovative pedagogy into schools and social care centres in Ukraine, Romania and Moldova. And so um, myself and a colleague, Dr. Helen Burns, we travelled to Kiev and on the outside of Kiev we had a two-day workshop where we introduced um, SOL, self-organised learning environments. Um, and just in case um, for your listeners who have not heard of it before, it's a very kind of simple inquiry-based approach. Um, the teacher asks a big question, introduces a big question. Um, the students self-organise into groups. Each group has access to the internet. Um, they then spend a bit of time um, looking for the answer, and then they develop a poster. Um, and we, at the end, then they present the answer to the rest of the class and share what they found out. And of course, the big questions need to be big enough so that the children can't answer them. It can't be a yes or no question because uh, they've got access to the internet. And so, and the idea is it's supposed to kind of help them express themselves, help them communicate, help them work in groups, collaborate, help develop their digital literacy skills. So um, that's why we were introducing it. And we went out there um, and we used the same kind of teacher training that we'd used in the UK and other areas. Um, we did a two-day workshop and, you know, we think it worked, worked quite well. Um, some of the older teachers were a bit kind of puzzled about, about the world because they said, well, what does the teacher do? Um, and obviously the teacher didn't do anything. We asked the teachers not to do anything during most of it because we, we asked them to provide a big question, but then it's all about standing back. And it's one of the, one of the most difficult aspects of the, um, the pedagogy is getting teachers not to intervene. And so... And there were lots of questions about that. And then afterwards, when we returned back to Newcastle, we started to get quite a lot of emails asking questions. And um, it was it was questions that teachers in the UK would not ask um, because the pedagogy is a self-organising environment. And so you're supposed to take control of it and then self-organise and adapt it to your, your mm. environment. Obviously, it didn't kind of sink in to the teachers in the UK. And we got a lot of questions so we had like a, an example lesson, 10 minutes for the question, uh, 30 minutes for the students um, researching the, using the internet, and then 20 minutes presenting. And they were asking questions, you know, could we use 15 minutes perhaps to ask the question, or five minutes, and lots and lots of questions like this. And we were just quite surprised at, and I kept saying, of course you can, this is your, and, and but they didn't want to break the rules. Mm. And mm -hmm. so, it, so it was first that was like a fascinating insight into the impact uh, and of culture, maybe. But anyway, the emails eventually stopped after I was after we kept on saying no. It's entirely up to you. Then when we went back to visit um, um, several months later, we witnessed it in action in a school and the teacher doing it. At the start of the session, they did something that we've never done before. They said to the um, they said to the students, right, one student from each group, go to the front of the classroom and choose which way you're going to present. And you can either choose doing a traditional poster, you could choose doing role play, or you could choose making a piece of art. Mm -hmm. so, so they had that choice at the start and we'd never, that, so they'd introduced that. And so that was that, that, that kind of uh, light bulb moment that yes, they'd got it and they'd introduced it. And so, and it was something that we'd never thought of before and it was brilliant. Um, and so I suppose the issues behind it then, I suppose the first one is the impacts of culture on teaching, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, we shouldn't have just used the teaching things that we used in the UK. We need to think more about mm -hmm. who we're teaching to. It's all, all about kind of 
importance of knowing your audience. Mm. And um, and again, it happens every year, you know, but I get a new group of master's students and um, and sometimes in the past, you know, I thought I've not really got to know who they are before I start teaching them. Mm. So, so this was definitely the case with um, the, the teachers we met. So we didn't get to know them. And, and as a result, they didn't get them. And then this final one, one of the questions, one of the emails we got, they were saying, the children are getting really bored of doing this now. And um, and um, what can we do? What else can we do? And this was after kind of a number of months. Um, and they were dead right. And obviously they weren't changing anything. They were doing things exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But again, that was another light bulb moment. So it was kind of, it doesn't matter how innovative we think our approaches are or different methods are. If you do the same thing again and again and again with children, they'll find it boring. Mm -hmm. And so it's important to continuously changing yeah yeah it was really kind of um it's, it's so right and the only person who can do that then is the teacher in that particular context um so there's a number of things there but yeah the impact of the culture mm -hmm. of former soviet union on teaching and parenting was a real eye-opener um they used authority um not 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 encouraged to kind of talk about their feelings uh, and their attitudes and not feeling that they were free to talk in the classroom and things like that. And so a real eye opening to the impact of culture uh, mm -hmm. for me. Yeah. That's great. And as you say, you're describing a number of light bulb moments for you, for them and for the students as well, which is great. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sharing that, James. So what about, so we are, we are slowly rowing over to our treasure islands where we will spend really good time with students, educating students. So I would love to have a sneaky peek in your boat. So what teaching proper pedagogies would you take with you? I'll, I get my going first today because I feel like maybe I'm cheating. So I'm going to go first and get mine in in case it's a cheat. Um, I wanted to bring with me podcasts. I don't know if I'm allowed those. Um, this is something that I've uh, really been exploring in my practice as an academic developer. Um, over recent um, weeks and months, and particularly in terms of um, the COVID pandemic, but also before that as well. And I'm focusing on um, this idea of um, professional dialogue, and Alexander's written a paper um, in 2000 around this. And I just wanted to share a little bit from the paper because for me, it really frames what I've been looking at. It says, um, professional dialogue harnesses the power of talk to engage learners' interest, stimulate thinking, advance understanding, expand ideas and evaluate arguments, empowering them for lifelong learning and democratic, democratic engagement. Being collaborative and supportive, it confers social and emotional benefits too. And for me, that's what I frame my work around is that um, professional dialogue and the transformative effect that it can have. Um, it promotes equality of colleagues' voices, um, it, it ensures personalised and authentic development. Um, and so I've been trying to explore ways that I can support colleagues in terms of professional dialogue. And so my prop would be podcasts, because that's one way that I found I can really um, ensure that colleagues are engaging in these professional dialogues in an authentic way. So I've, I've been kind of trying dialogue, um, podcasts in different ways um, and I've, I've been using them for um, uh, development in, in different programs that I run. So one of the programs that I run is the teaching recognition scheme at our university and I found that they've been really useful to record colleagues discussing anonymized applications for recognition 
Um, and then colleagues can listen into those conversations to find out the kind of things that panel members might be looking for in an application. And I found that they're really effective an effective use of kind of professional dialogue within the form of a podcast. Um, I've also been using them. Um, so we've been embedding the podcasts as part of our online PG CAP program. Um, and I also use them to kind of stimulate discussion in our CBD, CPD series. So there's lots of ways that I'm using these podcasts to kind of just prompt and promote um, this professional dialogue um, amongst academics. I don't know if I'm cheating bringing in something like that rather than something tangible that you can pick up. I think all we have is <laughs> if it's sustainable. So if it's solar panels, uh, listening devices to the podcast, then you are around. Brilliant. Definitely, I might need solar panels <laughs> to make it work. <laughs> I, I think I, I'd like to come in because I don't know why Alex was saying she was about to cheat on us. I mean, or to cheat because I. I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful prop and a wonderful, you know, it comes with the, the, the learning theories and, and, and everything, the pedagogies together. So I enjoyed it very much. I was actually thinking not in the, in the same direction, but in a similar direction. I was thinking of open educational resources um, because um, it, it's similar in the way that people need to use their creativity to construct something uh, new, innovative, and to answer to a, a specific need. And I think, especially in, in uh, the context where I live and work, um, we don't often have the financial means to buy textbooks or uh, to buy expensive uh, materials. So if we can have open educational resources that are freely shareable, then, then we're really, you know, having a, a step, making a step ahead. Uh, in terms of pedagogy, um, I, but maybe I'm already jumping the gun, but I was thinking mostly at connectivism. Um, I'm, I'm a bit eclectic. I've, I've always been a bit eclectic, so I would like to be taking bits and pieces from all kinds of theories. But the main one for me today would be connectivism. So that, that those are my thoughts. Great. Yeah, and I think your OER comment is very timely because I think it's OER week uh, at the time of recording. Uh, might not be when people, an audience might be listening to it, but yeah, that's perfect and it fits very much into our discussion around inclusion as well as you say making education inclusive in that sense as well achievable um but i might want to borrow some of the things that um that that you've all mentioned a little bit um and then add to it so i just wanted to say james i was really impressed with the self-organizing uh, aspect of that learning activity and it reminded me a lot of Sugata Mitra which you must be familiar with his work um, and there's yeah, so James much mentioned that he worked with him on one of the projects oh right oh, yes he was yeah. A, yeah he was a colleague yeah 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 a very inspirational I saw him as a keynote speaker um, a number of years ago and this idea of giving the students agency and trust, I think, is really important and recognizing that they have um, they, they can get real uh, solid learning from doing things themselves. We don't have to be overly directive and prescriptive. Um, and that kind of goes back to what Karen, what you were saying as well. So. So sort of taking a slight tangent from that, my own prop would probably be um, uh, and a framework that I often use as a go-to framework with my PG cert folks, 
which is Petraea Redmond and Alice Brown's online uh, engagement framework um, for higher education, but it also works, doesn't, it's not limited to online engagement. It can be face-to-face, -face, you know, in-person in the classroom kind of engagement, but I find it really valuable to think about the five different types of engagement they talk about. So there's the cognitive engagement, what happens in the students' minds. There's the behavioral engagement, which is are the things that they do. So those are the things we can e easily measure, you know, or we can have, you can use analytics to find out if they watch the videos or, you know, are they contributing to the class discussion, that kind of thing. Um, but they also really um, stress the importance of emotional engagement, which has to do with their motivation and self-confidence and the social and collaborative engagements. And those two elements are, um, I think what they have added to the prior uh, scholarship in that area. And I find that's really valuable for us when designing any kind of learning, build in those opportunities for students to interact and support each other and for us to all get to know each other. That kind of comes back to what you all, you were all saying. And also, Mary, I guess in during COVID as well, especially around social presence, if we're looking mm -hmm. at community of inquiry, it seems quite similar as well. Um, and that collaborative opportunities during lockdown and the various become even more important or pronounced to pay attention to. But yeah, thank you. I mean, this certainly can bring it with you, the framework, any kind of frameworks. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you. And the peer learning. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yes, Karen. One one memory of um, Sagata Mitra, who's now retired, but um, at a... At a a conference for the National Union of Teachers um, where he was asking the question, you know, do we still need teachers? Um, half the, um, in, in a provocative kind of way, obviously, um, half the half the audience stood up and applauded, stood and applauded, and the other half walked out. It's the only, it's the only, the only speaker I've ever, I've ever seen do that. A, a remarkable ability. Um, yes, shall I go? Is it my, okay, so, um, I didn't link my last bit with inclusion. So it's inclusive because um, if you introduce this approach in the Ukraine with these children and do a similar thing in a school in, in Newcastle, you'll get a very similar result. If you give them the internet and they work together in groups and try and answer a big question, you get very similar. Well, not, they don't answer it the same, but similar kind of activity. And so a really good leveler, I think, in, in that kind of way. Um, but when Sagata won the TED Prize in 2013 and we, um, we were working on the project, um, Ted being Ted, they, they, they published these, um, it looked like a pack of playing cards. Um, um, the project was called School in the Cloud. And in the, it wasn't, they weren't playing cards, but there was a big question on each one. Um, and um, questions like, um, let me, um, why is a teardrop shaped like it is? Why do dogs chase cats? How do my eyes know to cry when I'm sad? Is life on earth sustainable? Um, how was music created? Those kind of big questions. And so there was 52 of them. And um, so I think I would take that pack, that pack with me. And I think even though you would use the 52 after a period of time, I think what does happen is when you ask a big question, you end up with lots of other big questions at the end of it, usually generated by the children. And so I think it would sustain itself because you would start to kind of document more big questions. So that's the kind of prop I think I'd say.
Great, thank you. So yeah, I like this idea of sustaining, you know, you, you get the children, there's no better, I mean, there's no better way of learning is getting children or, or students to ask questions, further questions. Thank you. Okay, so we've been working very hard, well, you have been working very hard on the islands. Uh, then there is the, the time for downtime when you have might relax off duty. So my next question would be what luxury item would you put in your boat to row with you on this island that can sustain you? I'll go first because I think mine might help Alex in particular. So mine is the ultimate multifunctional tool, it's the mobile phone. And in a way, and, and because maybe podcasts in a way, because I do think coming back to podcasts, and I, I played around with them in my classes, um, there is something about listening and not seeing anything visually mm. by yourself in a quiet moment. You're just focusing on the voice. You, you're, you're not distracted in any other way, um, but you're just listening to the voice in your head. And I think there's something quite powerful about that. Um, obviously, the voice has to be talking about something of interest. Um, but the amount of podcasts over lockdown, I was watching so many, like In Our Time by Melvin Bragg, there's so many fantastic podcasts out there now. But also to play music um, and just access to being connected to everything else, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I think just as a reminder, we are allowing Wi-Fi internet on the island because it is about connections, you know, the learning experience. So as well, long as it's on a sustainable source, you are allowed it, <laughs> your mobile phone. It would be solar powered. That was yeah. the one. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. Yeah. Just to build on what James was saying there about the podcasts, we very much found giving people an opportunity to think and to reflect really then leads to really fruitful discussion. You know, if you then have a, you know, a journal club or a, a, a seminar, you know, a, a week after they've list, listened to the podcast, um, there's some really good discussion because people, like you're saying, James, they have time on their own to kind of brew their thoughts. Um, so they have been really, really helpful. So I'll borrow James's mobile phone. And then my luxury item was going to be my family. So he, I, he can... Um, it, uh, use his cards with my children because they would certainly generate questions um, <laughs> off the the question cards that he'd bring. So my mine would definitely bring bringing my family along to the island with me. That's how I relax um, is spending time with them. But yes, thank you, Alex. I think again, just listening to Desert Island, this they don't allow any form of communication or family or real people. But I think there is precedence of someone bringing along their son or daughter or family member. So I, I will be very lenient here. <laughs> so about you, Mary or Karen, what's your way to relax or what would be your luxury item? Well, I, if I'm going to take James' phone, except I'll bring my own phone. Um, and not only podcasts, but I'll listen to music. And in particular, this is True Confessions. I listen to John Digweed, techno, you know, music, um, he has a radio program and you can listen any as many times as you want or old ep episodes, you know, online. Um, and it puts me into the right mindset to focus on a, con a complex task if I'm working. But if I'm not working, I'll be open dancing. So it's <laughs> good for everything. Brilliant. I want to link to that, Mary. <laughs> Super. I, I was thinking when Alex started talking and she said my family, I was thinking along the same lines. So family, friends, but since, you know, they are already present now, um, 
I think we need some nice snacks and something to drink. Otherwise, life would be quite dull. So that would be my luxury item. Yeah, great. Any particular kinds, Karen? Oh, I've got a very uh, strong sweet tooth. So anything that's got, unfortunately, bad sugars in them is welcome. Great. <laughs> okay, so it seems like lots of nice audio experiences, dancing, eating together on the island. So it's going to be great, great fun. Okay, is there any other, now that you've heard everyone else's idea for the island, is there anything else that you think, oh, we could also bring that? Or you've also really well bartered with each other and borrowing each other's items. So I think that's already going on. Anything that might be missing or? I do like live music, but I can't play any instrument at all. So I was just wondering, can anyone else play anything? No. no. Nope, and no singing either. <laughs> Unless we need rain, then I can assist. <laughs> I've, maybe a little bit of folk music, yeah, a little bit. I can't say I'm a very good guitar player, but... Yeah, I'm sure maybe you can, you, uh, you know, if you, you're going by all the students who might be on the island as well, I'm sure you can find some with really talented um, musicians or singers. Bound oh, yes. Bound to be. And that community of practice will bring them all together where they're all singing or playing whatever they want to do or doing interpretive dance, whatever. Yeah. They can self-organize into groups. Yeah. Organize music. Yeah, yeah love you it. give a big question, a theme, and then see what happens. <laughs> Brilliant. And okay. Could, could we do something about the climate? Could we make sure that we always have beautiful weather that uh, makes the plants grow and that we have, you know, fresh vegetables and fruits? That would be lovely. Yeah, I think uh, especially, yeah, as you say, make sure that you have got the produce. I mean, um, the rain dance comes to mind or sun dance, you mm -hmm. know, oh, I'm sure they would work. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so uh, I think time time to sail away now. So thank you so much for, for all your uh, sharing, all your experiences and treasure items. So um, thank you also for our audience listening. And if you enjoy the episode, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you want to join as a guest, there is an expression of interest for, form on the Liverpool Uni CIE website, where you can also access the blog posts of all our episodes. And I just wanted to say goodbye for now and a big thank you to our guest today. Bye. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Thank you.